Welcome to the Social Exchange Podcast. Podcast. My name is Zach Rhodes. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of my 2016 interview with international best-selling author Johan Hari. The interview is from the archives of my previous podcast called Young Justice. At the time of this interview, Johan was actually sending his editor his final draft of his most recent book called Lost Connections. I mean it. Instead of working on his extremely important book project, he spoke with me for an hour and a half and procrastinated. If he only knew that this is back when I conducted these interviews out of my closet. (laughs) Also, the book he was procrastinating on actually became his second international bestseller, so I take full credit for that. I think I gave him the couple hours of distraction that he needed to stir up a bestseller. It's that Zach Rhodes closet interview bump. So you're welcome, Johan. (laughs) Johan is actually coming for a visit in my area while he's here. Um, we're going to do a TV and podcast interview while he's over here. That's going to be awesome. It's going to happen in June. I'm really looking forward to it. I'll, of course, let you know as soon as it happens. Uh, patrons get first dibs. Two more things. First, please check out my new website, modesofexchange.org. Um, I'll tell you more about it later. You'll see it in the show notes. Go ahead and visit it, and you'll figure out everything you want to know. Um, But go there, you'll find blogs from both community members and professionals about drugs and addiction, child development, and social and political issues. And if you have, it's a multimedia site too, so you'll get a a range of resources, but it's also a blog site that people can post into, community members, anybody can. If you have an idea for a blog, send it my way at socialexchangepodcast at gmail.com. And then there are blogs and articles from professionals and even just worldwide experts in the field. And so anyone's welcome to write in, and then depending on who you are or what your relationship is with the topic, you go in one of three categories, whether you're a layperson or, I would say, community member with a lot to say about the issue, a professional, just someone who works in the field, or somebody who I would say is a leading expert, so someone who's been in the field for long enough or has written maybe best-selling books or something like that. The other thing, my book with Stanton Peel, Outgrowing Addiction with Common Sense Instead of Disease Therapy, is available for pre-order. Find out more about the book at outgrowingaddiction.com. You can pre-order it from Amazon now at a discounted price. I think you get $5 off. Um, Oh, actually, there's one last thing. When you listen to this interview, you are going to hear a very clear difference between the sound quality um, of my previous podcast versus the sound quality of podcasts in the age of Aaron Ferguson. So Aaron's production and his music and editing ability is one reason that the sound is better. The other reason is because of the microphones and accessories and recording equipment I was able to purchase using the donations from our Patreon page. If you listen to the show and you do not donate, 
please consider making a small donation to patreon.com slash the social exchange. The donation will help keep this show on the up and up. Your donations help to fund modes of exchange, the website, and your donations will help fund creative projects in the future. So again, help the show by making a small donation to patreon.com slash the social exchange. The link is provided in the show notes. Now I want to thank all of our patrons, Christopher Hanlon, Andre Pompel, Carter Vermont, Rick Barnett, Ann Earl, Inigo, John Holt, Layla Ferguson, Mary Kay Villaverde, Michelle, Nancy, Sean, Regina Ferguson, Tim Tucker, Christian, Thomas Rhodes, Kathleen Cochran, Marjorie Israel, Diane T., Trevor, Susan Matthew, and Linda Rhodes. Again, you can join the club, support the show, and become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash the social exchange. Now enjoy this 2016 interview with the brilliant Johan Hari. I'm here with journalist and author of the best-selling book, Chasing the Scream, Johan Hari. Johan, thank you for being here with me. Hi, Zach. It's really good to be with you. Your book, Chasing the Scream, is obviously quite brilliant, as many of my listeners will attest, as is the case of all of your work I've encountered. So for people who don't know you, can you talk a little bit about yourself and just how you began this journey of educating the public about drugs and addiction and society? You know, it was a very personal reason that made me want to write this book. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And I didn't um, understand why then, but as I got older, I realised we had addiction in, in several members of my family. And when I started to work on the book, which was in God, uh, 2011, oh God, it was that long ago, <laughs> 2000, I realised, you know, I knew we were coming up to the 100th anniversary of when drugs were banned yes, in, 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 20, in 2014, it was the 100th anniversary. And I knew in December 2014. And I kind of, it was a really weird thing because I realized, so we've had 100 years of fighting this war on drugs. And I, I thought, when I began writing it, I kind of thought, oh, I know loads about this. This is going to be an easy book to do, right? I'd written as a journalist quite a lot about the war on drugs. And I'd, um, as I said, obviously lived through addiction with, with my family and but when I started to write it, when I sat down, I just realized, you know, I, I wrote out this list of questions, right? When I was first thinking about how do I, how am I going to do this? How am I going to structure the thinking about this book? I wrote a list of, I think it was four questions. And it was, why did we go to war against drugs, drug addicts a hundred years ago? Why do we carry on when it doesn't seem to be working? What are the actual alternatives like in practice? And what really causes drug use and drug addiction? So all easy questions. <laughs> <laughs> And I sat down to write it. I just thought, fuck, I don't... No, sorry, can I... Sorry, I don't know if I can swear you on say whatever you want, yeah. Um, I thought, fuck, I don't... I don't know the answers to any of these questions. And that was when I realised I had to really go on a journey. And um, and I ended up going to, like... God, now, by now, it's more since I wrote the books. I think it's 18 different countries. And I really 
sat with just I want to just sit with people whose lives have been changed either by the war on drugs or by the alternatives to the war on drugs. Mm. So you know that ended up being a crazy mixture of people, as anyone who's, who's read the book knows. And I just learned so much about just how much what we're told about all these subjects is just wrong. It seems like one of the your major gains from the project is to sort of realize that conversations about social policies with respect to addiction, they don't need to be abstract or philosophical, right? Because there's plenty of data. You've also successfully talked about drug policies having much to do with some unfortunate American history complete with inexcusable racism. I wonder if we could start with just a little bit of history, specifically to the drug war. Could you walk me through how our so-called drug war began and who started it? I'm glad you said that about abstraction, because one of the things I think about... Um, well, I, for some reason, I'm just allergic to very abstract uh, arguments anyway. It's one of the reasons why I just cannot read French philosophy. <laughs> I just find the minute any argument is too abstract, you could just be saying any old bullshit, right? Exactly. This, things have got to be embedded in... You know, I am a British empiricist. I think you have to go back to you know, stories and facts and people's experience and scientific evidence rather than just, you know, weird, moralistic or abstract argument. And I think, you know, this is, there's so many things I learned for Chasing the Screen that really surprised me, but one of them was the story about why drugs were banned. If you had asked me when I started doing the research, why were drugs banned in 1914? I would have guessed that they were banned for the reasons that if you stepped out of this interview now and you asked the next person to walk past your your apartment in Vermont, well, why are drugs banned? They'd probably say, well, you don't want kids to use drugs, you don't want people to become addicted. What really surprised me, a lot of archival research and in Penn State University, they've got the archives of the mangled Harry Anslinger, who I'll talk about in a minute. And, and it really struck me, spending so much time in those archives, that stuff barely came up, right? They, they, that's not why drugs were banned. They, they didn't talk about it. it you literally didn't mention it most of the time in the official debates. The reason I'm banned for a different reason, and I open Chasing the Screen with this moment, which I think to some people might seem like a weird place to begin a book about the war on drugs. And I can tell some people think, oh, hang on, what, what, what's this got to do with the war on drugs? One night in 1939, Billie Holiday, the great jazz singer, walked on stage in a, in a hotel in Midtown, um, in Midtown Manhattan, um, and she sang for the first time a song, a song called Strange Fruit that um, I'm sure most of your listeners know is a song about lynching. It's this idea that the bodies of African-American men hanging from trees are of the strange fruit of the, the South. And uh, her, her goddaughter, Lorraine Feather, said to me, you've got to understand how challenging this was, how radical this was to have... You know, I mean, Billie Holiday wasn't even allowed to walk through the front door of that hotel. She had to go through the service elevator. So to have an African-American woman singing this incredibly powerful song against lynching was was a really explosive moment. And and that night, Billie Holiday received a warning from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics run by this man, Harry Anslinger. And it basically said, stop singing this song. And... It must be like a weird place to begin. You think, well, hang on, why? Why the Federal Bureau of Narcotics giving a warning to a jazz singer? What about a song? What's going on here? And, and I only was really able to piece it together through through the archives and through other things, other sources. So we've got to step back a second. Harry Anslinger, I think, is the most influential person who no one's ever heard of. He's the man who 
he was in charge at that time and for many years before that moment in 1939, he was in charge of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He basically took it over when it was the Department of Prohibition. So you've got alcohol prohibition. It's obviously been a complete disaster. It's discredited. He takes it over a couple of years before it ends. And he takes over this big government bureaucracy. He's a government bureaucrat. He's been promoted because his uh, one of his relatives, his wife's relatives, is in charge of the Treasury Department, and he takes over this big government department, and he wants to keep it going. But they've just lost the war that they're designed to fight, and he designed the modern war on drugs, effectively as a way to keep that bureaucracy going. Now, that's not to say he didn't believe in the cause; he did believe in it, and he really built this. He's the first person to use the phrase "war against drugs" long before Nixon or Reagan or people who are normally attributed. And Harry Anslinger really built the war on drugs around two intense hatreds he had. One was an intense hatred of people with addiction problems based on a neighbour he'd known who had an addiction problem when he was a little boy, and he'd been really terrified of it. And one was an incredibly intense hatred of African-Americans mm. and mm. Chinese-Americans and Latinos. You've got to understand, he was regarded as a crazy racist in the 1920s, which is a side of how insanely racist he was he used the n-word so often in official police memos that he had to be uh, his own senator called him to to, to resign it's terrifying. And, and it's crazy and, and it's actually one thing that also is terrifying is the, the incredible parallels between the things that anslinger said and the things that jeff sessions is, and donald trump the rhetoric they both use about the idea that foreigners are polluting the country with drugs very similar to what trump said on the intro <laughs> and to harry anslinger Billie Holiday was like a symbol of everything that was going wrong in the world, right? She was a African-American. She was an African-American woman. He was pretty misogynist. She was an African-American woman singing a song against lynching, resisting white supremacy. And she was a heroin addict. She, she'd been raped as a child uh, initially by one man. And when she was 11, 10 or 11, we don't know the exact age. And then she sent to, he's sent to prison for a year and a half and she's punished for even longer. She's sent to this horrendous, convent she runs away from there and she ends up in a, a brothel where she's raped by enormous numbers of men for money which is what child prostitution is and she really just kind of stun her grief and her pain she uses a huge amount of alcohol and a huge amount of, of heroin and, and and so anslinger resolves to destroy her and i can tell you more about what happened next if you like but the, the i think this tells us the kind of cauldron of forces that are at work that launch the drug war it's not about a rational calculation about, oh, we want to prevent these bad things. We want to achieve these good things. It's a cauldron of hatred and a, and a really a savage assault on African-Americans, people with addiction problems, Latinos, Chinese-Americans. It's kind of forgotten bit of the history. And really, it's just a kind of mad uh, assault with no relationship to facts, evidence, reason, none of that. There's one bit, <laughs> one thing I found in the archives that's really kind of bleakly funny there's this anslinger had initially said that cannabis wasn't harmful and he had no problem with it but his department you couldn't really run that big a department on just heroin and resisting heroin and cocaine because they just weren't very popular so he suddenly announced that cannabis was the most evil literally the most evil i think it's the exact words most evil drug in the world um and uh you know he said uh, if frankenstein's monster bumped into cannabis on the stairway Cannab uh, Frankenstein's monster would drop dead of fright. Like he said, loads of really heightened things like this. And anyway, a doctor wrote to him, a guy, Dr. Ball, I think his name was. And he said, you know, Mr. Anslinger, it's, it was a scientist who specialised in drugs, 
So, you know, Mr. Anslinger, this, this may be true about cannabis. I don't think it is. I've done these trials. But, you know, if you just fund a, a scientific study, we can figure this out. And Anslinger wrote back something like, the time for temporizing with facts is over. <laughs> um, one of my favorite Anslinger quotes is at one point when he's imposing this on the rest of the world, when he's extorting the rest of the world to fight the war on drugs, several countries resist. And one, uh, one country at the UN, this was in the 50s at the UN, I think it was the, um, I think it was Thailand, were um, refusing to do it and were arguing back. And he said, I've made up my mind. Don't try to confuse me with the facts. Which I think is like the perfect slogan for the war on drugs. That's remarkable, if not disturbing. Were people aware that they were just being fed propaganda, or were these drug policies really being developed in the dark, free of facts? One thing that really surprised and inspired me was how big the resistance was to this, right at the start. How um, this, this was not something that was just introduced and everyone went along with it. There was enormous resistance. I'll give you one example. When heroin was banned in 1914, so before Anslinger, there was a very specific clause that was written into it, which was they said people can't buy heroin, but anyone who's got an addiction problem can go to their doctor and the doctor can prescribe it, right? Which is very clearly written into the law. And when Anslinger takes over the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, so, sorry, before Anslinger takes over, this happens all over the United States. There are heroin clinics. Uh, there are lots of doctors who, because other, the alternative was people going and getting it from criminal gangs mm. and just didn't want their patients to do that. So lots of doctors prescribed heroin and there were designated heroin clinics. Um, and then Anslinger decides to shut these down one by one. And there's a really big resistance. Um, the mayor of Los Angeles stands in front of a heroin prescribing clinic and says, you will not shut this down. This is really popular with the, the you know, it does a good job for the people of Los Angeles. And there was actually... Incredible. There's an amazing doctor whose story I tell in, in Chasing the Scream, Henry Smith Williams, who I, yeah, I find it's almost freaky reading about this. Henry Smith, I, I learned about Henry Smith Williams because he's mentioned Anslinger rants and raves about him in his in his archives. And I was like, who is this guy? What, what, what's the story? Anyway, Henry Smith Williams was a doctor in Los Angeles who prescribed heroin to addicts. He actually it was kind of an interesting story because before the ban on drugs, Henry Smith Williams, this doctor, had very little sympathy for addicts. He in fact, he said that it'd be better if they all just died. He was really unsympathetic to them. And then he saw that drugs were then drugs were banned and heroin was banned. And he saw that these these patients he had who'd been heroin addicts before, who used to go and buy it from the local pharmacy, and of course their lives were somewhat depleted, but they had a safe legal supply. Suddenly, these people had to pay a much higher price to armed criminal gangs. A lot of them became criminals. A lot of the women were forced to become prostitutes. A lot of the men were forced into property crime. And he saw that loads of his patients started to just die because the product was so much worse when it was in an illegal market. And it really changed him. And he began to argue for the clinics, for these safe legal clinics. And Anslinger just resolves to destroy him. He has Henry Smith Williams, his brother, arrested, accused of being effectively a drug dealer. Um, and there's this, what happened then, and I think this is a kind of um, devastating story, is the biggest roundup of doctors in American history, 17, in, in the wake of the Anslinger trying to shut down this loophole, 17,000 doctors are arrested in the United States. It's an extraordinary number. Um, uh, huge numbers were fined. Some went to prison. So there's this really brutal attempt to shut down this loophole. And of course, a big increase in deaths afterwards. Um, Henry Smith Williams wrote a book called Drug Addicts are Human Beings. Mm. And it's 
eerie when you read it. He wrote it in the 30s, and there's one bit where he says, you know, we won't carry on like this, right? We can't. But if we were so crazy as to continue with this policy, 50 years from now, we'll have a $5 billion smuggling industry in the United States. Henry St. Williams was right to almost the exact year. You know, it's so crazy when you read this, when I read this book, when I discovered it, you know, I obviously then dug into who this guy was. And when I read it, I think it was, it's very, it was very hard to find a copy. I think I found a copy in the Library of Congress in DC. And it's like, fuck, this would be a radical book now. Right at the start of the war on drugs, people saw exactly what was coming, right? It wasn't difficult to predict. They could see it coming. And all these people who died in the years since, none of that had to happen. And that is maddening. How about now in 2017? How is your book in this literature, like it was to me, so novel for most people? Are most people naive like I was before reading it, of the history of behind our current policies? Or do you think people are generally aware, just like prohibition when people we were paving a private road to destruction and just sort of fine with the status quo yeah i don't criticize any individual for not knowing this stuff i mean there's been an enormous uh propaganda campaign to hide you know to 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 present us with a false story of what's been happening and why so no i'm not i don't think people are naive people you know people have a limited amount of time in the day (laughs) and you know they they uh they it's surprising to me, and, and, and although I was always in favour of more compassionate drug policies, I didn't, I've never changed my mind on that. There were so many things. It, it, the war on drugs is a really interesting subject because it's incredible that we can get so many basic things so wrong about something so important. And that, and, and so, you know, although, as I say, I was always in favour of more compassionate drug policies... There were so many things that I got wrong before I did this research that I didn't understand that I, um, some things I got flat out wrong uh, that I think, no, I, I, don't, I don't, I don't think it's that people are naive. And, you know, and people's opinions are changing unbelievably quickly. You know, I mean, you know, we, there's just, we're speaking a couple of days after the <clears throat> a, a record-breaking poll showing the highest support for cannabis legalization in American history. Um, it's worth remembering when Bill Clinton left office, which is, you know, the year 2000. It's not, we're not talking ancient history, although, God, it feels like it now. Uh, when Bill Clinton left office, I think the support for cannabis legalization was something like 15%. And now it's, I think, 65%. You know, that is an extraordinary transformation in a short period of time. Now, there are other very negative transformations happening at the, in the world at the moment as well. But so it's nice to cling to a little bit of um, hope. But, the, you know, so, so and, and, and actually towards addiction have just radically transformed in the last in the last few years. You know, people cannot say about addicts what was absolutely routinely said in the 1980s, as recently as the 1980s. And you even see that in popular culture. You know, if you watch, um, uh, I'm a sucker for, uh, I think it was nostalgia from my childhood the shitty 1980s police shows. Sure. So if you watch like Remington Steel or Starsky and Hutch or Miami Vice, right? The uh, which I used to watch with my grandmother, who loved those shows. Um, the you know if you watch those shows, a real staple of 80s police shows is um, you know the evil addict, right? There'll be a character who's an addict, and it's indicated to you 
that they are evil because they are an addict. And that would be unthinkable now. You're not going to get a character on like Brooklyn Nine-Nine or CSI or, you know, um, True Detective or something who is an evil addict. It would be unthinkable, right? The culture has changed in the same way that you wouldn't get a kind of evil gay, you know, a person where it was the sign that they were, you knew they were evil was that they were gay or something. It would just be unthinkable, right? right. Now, that's a change that's happened. That's a cultural change that's happened in a relatively short period of time. You can't use political rhetoric about addicts. Even the Republicans have to pretend to have an element of compassion about it um, in a way that they, they just didn't in the 80s, right? Um, so I do think there's been a really uh, significant significant cultural shift. Now, that's not, that cultural shift is not translated yet into more compassionate policies. I mean, you could say it's a little bit more compassionate than the reaction to the opiate crisis is a little bit more compassionate than the reaction to the the crack epidemic, and that's partly because it's perceived that the incorrectly that the the people in the crack epidemic were African American and the people in the opioid epidemic are white. Yeah. Neither, I mean, there's there's mythology around both those things, but but that's not really significantly translated into into more compassionate policies. So we've got a hell of a lot more work to do, and partly that's about things like explaining what addiction actually is, explaining about the places that have adopted different approaches to addiction with really remarkable results. Uh, and a whole whole range of, of things like that. You know, I've been thinking a lot uh, over the last year, I've been thinking a lot about Trump and the opioid crisis, and there's this really interesting, I'm blanking on his name, sorry, it's um, too uh, jet-lagged. Um, there's a guy, uh, an academic, who's written a really interesting study about uh, the opioid crisis. He refers to the the deaths in the opioid crisis is despair deaths. Mm. And um, and there's been some research indicating that uh, support for Trump correlates quite highly with the opioid crisis. And some people have made what I think is a really ugly and, and stupid and actually self-defeating kind of, um, uh, the people who support Trump are losers. They're, they're just all just dying of addiction. You know, and I think that's a repulsive way to talk about people with addiction problems that sort of really politically stupid way to talk if you want to we're going to have to persuade some of those people um but if we want trump not to be re-elected but i think both trump and the opioid crisis are manifestations of similar kinds of despair about our culture and similar kinds of of hopelessness um before the election i was in one of the things i did was i went to cleveland uh with some some people i'm doing some research for for a different project and um we went to this place in cleveland called we're trying to get the vote out against trump and we went to this place called slavic city in uh, in cleveland it's in west cleveland i think and uh i don't know why it's called slavic city no one knows slavic it must be some historic <laughs> reason and um i went to this street where you know about a third of the houses have been demolished a third have been abandoned and a third still have people living in them I spent loads of time talking to people in these houses and I remember there was this one door I, I knocked on and there was a woman who I later found out was the same age as me, 37 at the time. If we're looking at her, I would have guessed she was 55. Mm. And we were talking and she was really angry and, um, you know, about everything. And she was saying that the, the kids who lived in the neighbourhood or her neighbours, she was, she was this person filled with, with rage. And she was describing what the neighbourhood used to be like and she made this 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 verbal mistake 
she meant to say when I was young, but but what she actually said is when I was alive. Mm. And it really, I thought about that a lot when I think about both Trump and the opioid crisis, and I've been to other places. I was spent a lot of time in New Hampshire, meeting some people from you know the, the one of the places that's actually one of the hearts of the opioid crisis at the moment, and that really deep despair in our culture that you, is manifesting in Brexit, in Trump, in, you know, you and I speaking day after Marine Le Pen came second in mm. the first round of the French presidential election. There's a really deep despair in our culture and a really deep source of distress and um, a lot of work that needs to be done to, to, to deal with that. And, we're, uh, you know, it's hard not to be, you know, I'm by nature an optimist, but it's hard not to be pessimistic about that at the moment. Yeah, when you hear things like that, I mean, I think there's a lot to learn from the inherent failures of the drug war. But when you talk about despair like that, I remember thinking about when I was reading your book, Alcohol Prohibition in particular, as one type of drug ban later repealed. I mean, that's our one piece of evidence that we could be looking at. Um, so I'm, actually, I'm going to ask for your help spelling out what some of those failures were with respect to despair. But I, I do want to say, to be fair, I can at least sympathize when I think about it. Americans of 1920 or around then who noticed that drugs, including alcohol, they have the potential to be quite harmful to individual lives and societies. And of course, that's only a partial truth because the harms of alcohol were hyped and overstated. But I could understand why someone would believe, rather than being a social despair sort of a situation, that alcohol was the problem. And I think that's remarkably similar to the situation we're looking at today. Was alcohol prohibition simply destined to fail? And what lessons can we take away from that failure that it, that it was? Well, there's another historical parallel. I'll perhaps talk about alcohol prohibition, but there's another historical parallel which I've been thinking about a lot in relation to um, the situation in the U.S. at the moment, actually, and actually in Brazil, where I just was. Um, I'm back in London for, for uh, a month. And in the 18th century in London, this pretty interesting thing happened here. Huge numbers of people were driven out of the countryside into these kind of disgusting urban slums. And, you know, they, they, they were driven out of the countryside where they'd had communities and they'd lived for hundreds of years and they'd had meaning into these really rancid, pre-Charles Dickens kind of horrible slums. Mm. And huge numbers of them started obsessively drinking gin. And there was this thing called the gin craze, which seems to have been a real phenomenon, where basically loads of them just became alcoholics. There's a famous painting that some of your listeners might have seen by a painter called Hogarth, which is kind of like an icon of that moment in English history, where a woman is um, drinking a bottle of vodka while her baby like falls off a high spot, right? And uh, stuff like that did happen, right? I don't know if that specific thing happened, but there was real disaster. And if you look at what people said, there's a good book about this. Funny enough, I was looking at it earlier today. It's called um, Craze, Gin and Debauchery in an Age of Reason by Jessica Warner. Really good book there. And um, what happened at the time was huge numbers of people said, look at this evil drug gin. Look at what it's doing to everyone. If only we could get rid of this evil drug gin, Everything would be back to normal. People wouldn't be doing this. Now, when we look back on that period of history, we see, well, that can't be right. Because, you know, in England today, anyone can buy gin, right? I, I live a four-minute walk. In my, my apartment in, in London is a four-minute walk from 
a place where I could buy gin. I'm not drinking gin. No one's drinking. I mean, obviously someone is, but you know, you don't have, you know, there's not, no one's baby is falling out of a window because they're drinking gin. There is not a gin craze. Of course, there are some alcoholics in, in England as everywhere else, but we're not talking about epidemics. What changed isn't the availability of gin because gin was available then and it's available now. What changed is the amount of social distress um, that, that, you know, people were drinking alcohol for very, very good reasons. They were anaesthetizing their very deep pain. It's like, like we were saying about Billie Holiday. They were anaesthetizing very deep pain. It's a very challenging line. I, I usually hold back on, on quoting this when I talk about these things publicly, but I think it is worth thinking about. Please. Marianne Faithfull in her memoir, Faithfull, which is, Marianne Faithfull was a British um, singer. She went out with Mick Jagger in the 60s. She wrote a fantastic memoir uh, I recommend to people. And she had a heroin addiction in the 60s. And she, she was homeless for a time. She has this very challenging line. I might be quoting it slightly wrong, but the gist of it is, heroin saved my life. Because if it wasn't for heroin, I would have killed myself. And when I was doing a lot of work on the downtown, for Chasing the Scream on the downtown east side of Vancouver, which obviously a place with a very, very high level of addiction. I'm going back there soon, actually. Um, a lot of people said things like that to me, not quite as succinctly. I think seeing addiction as purely an irrational spasm, and this is the point, that it plays a role and a function in the life of the person who's engaging in that behaviour. Now, it, of course, there are many destructive aspects of that behaviour, and we want to desperately help people get back to way of life where they don't feel the need to be constantly anaesthetized um and certainly all that is much more harmful in the context of war on drugs as well so add that whole level of fuck up on top of it people turn to anesthetic anesthetics because they're in deep pain and i've never met someone who had an addiction problem where i couldn't since since i've done this research and i understood these points where i didn't understand why they were addicted now, that's not to say I didn't want them to stop. I didn't want to help them, of course. But, you know, why is addiction so high in Cleveland and not very high in Beverly Hills, right? It's not to say there aren't some people who are addicted to Beverly Hills because you can get cut off at the top like you can get a car off at the bottom. But why is it? Look at where the map of where addiction is highest in the United States, right? It's also the place where antidepressant prescriptions are highest. It's also the places where people's lives are worst, where they have the least social connections, where they have the least purpose and meaning in their lives, where they've been most cut off from the things that human beings need to, 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 to not be in pain. So, you know, I think we have this kind of fatuous conversation about addiction. And I'm, I have to say, I'm, I'm going to my more controversial points here, but the um, I'm really concerned with the way that our side of the argument is talking about the opioid crisis. Yes. People who would not dream of saying that the crack epidemic in the 1980s, so-called crack epidemic in the late 80s, early 90s, they would not say... So in the late 80s and early 90s, loads of people blamed the crack epidemic on drug dealers. They said, look at these evil drug dealers. We need to arrest them all. We need to stop them selling drugs. And if we did that, all this problem would go away. Now, most people on our side now know that was a really stupid way of talking about this, right? The problem was that people were desperate to anaesthetize their pain and they wanted really powerful anesthetics. And um, if they hadn't found crack, they would have found something else. And, you know, the, the idea that it, well, it's ludicrous to think you could stop drug dealing, right? That in itself is an absurd fantasy. We can't even keep drugs out of our prisons. <laughs> we pay someone to walk around the fence the whole time. But, but, more, but more importantly, 
um, it misses why people wanted to be addicted. It's not that this, like, this ludicrous idea of the drug pusher, right? The idea that the, the kind of the drug pusher had to force people to want to take this drug and hijack them and take them over, which is just bears no relationship to what's really going on. What has happened though is that some of that way of thinking has been transposed onto big pharma. I'm a huge critic of big pharma. Anyone who looks through when I was a columnist at the independent newspaper, it was a recurring theme of mine to call out Big Pharma. Big Pharma are monsters. They do terrible things. But I'm afraid to say in the real world, they are not the reason why there is an opioid crisis in the United States. Now, there were some things they did wrong. There were some things they missold. But the reason why there's an opioid crisis is because there's a huge number of people who are in fucking terrible pain and they need anesthetics to get through the day. And if they had not found those op- the 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 prescription opiates they would have found another form of anesthetic or they would have been so depressed they killed themselves or they would have just had grinding terrible depression it is a misunderstanding of what's going on to think this is being primarily driven by the availability of the drug and the real danger in this rhetoric about the opioid crisis is um that what it, it misses the lesson of the one place that has successfully solved an opioid crisis which is switzerland i'm happy to talk to talk to you about that because they did the opposite of what People on our side are now arguing should be done in the opioid crisis. Well, let me ask you this first. I actually wanted to get there. So I sort of have these two different ways that I like to think about why drug laws are just completely senseless that make sense to me. And one is what you're talking about at first, the sort of moral intuition. that Peaceful adults not only should be able to alter their conscious experience at their leisure, but some must. And so insofar as they're not harming anybody else, we shouldn't have so much of a problem with it. And, and of course, not everybody's going to sign on the dotted line here. So the second way to think about drug laws is a more pragmatic one. I've learned this from going to uh, different legislative meetings in my area. So the more pragmatic set of reasons is, like you reference in the case of Portugal and Switzerland in your book, so what you'll talk about, there's money to be saved and harm to be reduced by having gentler drug laws. So I wonder if this kind of logic is more digestible for, say, a political conservative or another way we could be talking about it. I think the example of Switzerland ties in nicely. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that addiction is a positive state. Quite the opposite. Someone who is in terrible pain and needs to anesthetize themselves, that's a tragedy, right? And what, But the solution to that is not to take away the anesthetic, but to deal with the source of the pain, right? Is to help them turn their lives around. And I would distinguish that addictive behavior from ordinary drug use 90 percent of drug use whether it's cannabis or cocaine is just someone having a good time right the same reason that if you went into a bar you know in vermont where you are tonight or i go into the bar around the corner from where i live um the vast majority of people there are just drinking because it makes their life better that's actually the norm for all drug use that surprised me but there's very strong evidence for that i think in switzerland i think switzerland has so much to teach us and it was really moving i'm also a I'm slightly biased because I'm a Swiss citizen. My dad's from there as well as obviously a British citizen. But 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 I don't think that's why I'm interested in this. So Switzerland had this huge drug problem in the 90s. And they tried all sorts of different things to, to deal with it. They had massive crackdowns. They had this disastrous experiment where they rounded it all up, all the addicts. And the police just pushed them all into one park and said, just use your drugs in that park, which just led to a kind of horror show. Um and 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 uh, kind of one day, Ruth Dreyfus, who was the at the time the health minister, later became the president of Switzerland. She's an incredible, incredible person. I got to know her. I love her. Um, she she explained to Swiss people, you know, when when you hear the word legalization, what you picture is kind of anarchy or a free for all. But she explained 
what we have now is anarchy. We have unknown criminals selling unknown chemicals to unknown drug users, all in the dark, all filled with violence, disease and chaos. Legalisation is the way we restore order to that chaos. So what they do in Switzerland, obviously legalisation for heroin does not mean you can't just go into the Swiss equivalent of CVS and just buy heroin, right? That's not, no one's in favour of that. There's not a heroin aisle in, in, you know, in CVS. The way it works is if you've got a heroin addiction, you're assigned to, to a clinic. You go to that clinic, you turn up early in the morning because Swiss people believe in doing things early in the morning, which is one reason why I could never live in Switzerland. Um, and you're given your heroin there. You have to use it there. You can't take it out with you. And you're watched by a nurse while you use it. And then you leave and you go to your job because they give you loads of support to get a job, to turn your life around. And this is the key thing. So they give you the drug to stop the chaos of street use and to stop you getting a horrifically impure form of the drug that's much more dangerous. And then they give you loads of social support to turn your life around. Now, what we're told, part of the bullshit of the war on drugs, is we're told, oh, if you give people a drug, they'll need more and more and more of it until eventually they just kill themselves. We're also told, if you just gave an addict a drug, they'd never stop. Interesting thing is in Switzerland, so when I went there, I went to the clinic in Geneva. It's very revealing. Ruth Dreyfus, the former president, lives around the corner from this clinic that she helped to set up. It's very hard to imagine a former American president living around the corner from a heroin prescribing clinic. Um, Ruth, um, sorry, the, the, when I went to the clinic, I, I was surprised because they'll give you whatever dose you want, provided it wouldn't actually kill you. And there is never any pressure to cut back. And yet almost everyone chooses to cut back over time and stop. And I said to Rita Mangi, who was the great psychiatrist who ran it, I said, Rita, why, why is that? And she kind of looked at me and said, well, because their lives get better. And as their lives get better, they want to be present in their lives more. And, you know, it was very striking to me. So a lot of the women who'd been prostituting themselves stopped. A lot of the men who'd been committing street crime stopped. Now, there's all sorts of ways this could be sold, right? And Swiss people, you know, Switzerland is really conservative. My poor Swiss grandmother got the vote in 1973, right? This is this is not the hate Ashbury, right? And yet, when Swiss people, once this program had been introduced, Swiss people had a referendum on it. And 70%, 70% of Swiss people voted to keep heroin legal. And it's partly because of the results. It's partly because there have been no heroin overdose deaths on legal heroin since this began. Nobody, zero, not one person. Compare that to, I think it's, what is it, 70 people a day dying on opiate overdoses in the United States. I mean, obviously, Switzerland is a smaller country, but even if you round up zero, it's still zero, right? Um, but also there was just a really huge fall in crime and it saved loads of money. Obviously, it costs money to run the clinics, but you save so much money in the criminal justice system, in healthcare, because HIV fell so massively. Um, so you get a whole range of benefits. And I think that's one way to sell it. It's, it's, uh, the Swiss way was basically to say it restores order to this chaos. But you know, that has really important lessons for the opioid crisis, right? Because what a lot of well-meaning, good people on our side, who you and I would regard as allies, are saying the solution to the opioid crisis is is stop the legal availability of these drugs, right? Yes, so yes. throw people off their prescriptions. Now, I can tell you, because I've interviewed lots of people in that position, and I've interviewed doctors in that position, I can tell you exactly what happened. They go onto the street. The addiction doesn't vanish if you stop. You don't cut off the prescription. They go onto the street. Oxy is super oxy, and all the other Vicodin and all the other um, opiate-based painkillers are super expensive on the street. Far more of them transition to heroin. It, it is a disaster to cut people off. What we should be doing is following the Swiss example, which is prescribe for addiction, 
So if people have got an addiction, you prescribe to meet that addiction. And at the same time, you give them really extensive support to turn their lives around. So they want to leave behind their addiction. That's the solution. That's what worked incredibly well in Switzerland. There's a slightly different model in Portugal that's also worked well that I'm happy to talk about. But that's about dealing with the underlying cause of the addiction. Because the drug use is a manifestation of the problem, right? It's the symptom of the problem. It's not the problem. Uh, now, it can bring with it terrible problems, of course. Of course, it can bring overdose. It can bring all sorts of catastrophes. But the core of the problem is not the drug itself. And I'm happy to talk about some of the evidence about addiction and why that is. But there's, a, 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 I think, a really dangerous debate going on about that at the moment. And I'm quite worried about the direction it's going to go in. I'm obviously worried about the general direction of the United States and Jeff Sessions and all the many, uh, you know, bad you know, black clouds on the, on the, on the horizon. But, the, but that aspect I'm worried about, because even our side is demanding that disastrous policy, and I think that's really dangerous. I have a perfect story about that and a, a nice way to end it. First, I just want to say one crucial difference you point out. There's a huge difference between dependence on a drug, as you say, and addiction. A drug alone is just not enough to cause an addiction. And most people, as you also said in our talk, who try most drugs, including heroin, aren't addicted to them. I hope you don't mind a short story about something that happened here yeah, in my state. So Sam Quinones, who I, I know you know and have read, author of the book Dreamland, came to Vermont recently to give a talk about just what you're saying, how overprescription of opiate drugs is the driving force behind the opiate and heroin crisis. And it is that very familiar story of the innocent pain patient that becomes chemically dependent on the prescription that they got from some routine surgery. It's the same story that we were told in Vermont by our governor in 2014 when he focused his whole state of the state address on opiates. And of course, as the story goes, the doctor cuts off a person's prescription. They begin to hunt for more, the most available being heroin. And therein lies the reason for the spike of heroin overdose deaths. And this is another partial truth. The thing that I want to really linger on is that people who become addicted typically are not the people prescribed drugs. And actually, people who are prescribed drugs, of those people who become addicted to them, they usually have some other comorbidity. But in the intro to our talk, I will have given some statistics refuting this explanation. Uh, it's hard to be that guy who attends functions and does writing, disproving, very lovely people like Sam, who just happen to be wrong in a lot of ways. You seem to have made a career out of this, and you do it much nicer. So <laughs> maybe we can end on... <laughs> well, well, you know, go ahead. But, but I think it, it, it links together several of the things we've been talking about, right, Zach? Because and, and I say about Sam, by the way, that he is a brilliant journalist, and a lot of the stuff that he writes about this is really valuable. So it's, although I disagree with part of his thesis... He has done really valuable work on this. And, and Maya, you mentioned, I think is amazing. and I, I love her. But the, it goes back to Anslinger, right? It's what has the war on drugs been about from the beginning? What it is, is the desire to take things we fear about ourselves, externalize them in an object or another person, and try to destroy that object or other person in the belief you will then destroy that thing in yourself. So Harry Anslinger you know, um, I'm giving away the twist in my book, but he uh, himself ends up using opiates. He is terrified of these impulses in himself. 
and he thinks if only we can externalize it. What are, and what is he afraid of? He's afraid of this profound chaos in himself. So he projects that onto African-Americans. He says, oh, they're these kind of, inverted commas, animalistic, chaotic forces that are going to make the world disorder because he's so afraid of this disorder in himself. What are we... We're, we're, it's, it's so much easier to say it's not because we're all in pain. It's because of this evil object out there. And if we get rid of the evil object out there, the, the problem will go away. I understand that temptation. It's really tempting. It's a lovely story. It will rouse people up. And I'm afraid it's not true. Now, the object out there can cause other problems, right? I don't want to say there's no additional harm caused by the object. Clearly, of course there is. It's, that would be ludicrous. But I think it's, 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 it's missing the core of why we're in this crisis. And I'll just say one other thing I'm worried about, and I think it's worth your your listeners watching out for. So Chris Christie, the former and repugnant mm. governor of New Jersey, has been put in charge of the developing a strategy along with Kellyanne Conway, God help us, um, to deal with the opioid crisis. And Chris Christie, I think, is, is a slightly different thing, but we've really got to watch out for. So Chris Christie said this thing when, it, when he was running for the Republican nomination before Bridgegate brought him down. He said that he had this his one good, mo- good in inverted commas, moment on the campaign trail was when uh, he had this big viral moment when he talks about compassion for addicts, right? He says, people might remember this. It was a like, kind of five-minute stump speech that got millions and millions of views. So his mother, he talks about how his mother was a smoker and she basically killed herself smoking. She could never stop. Even when, if I remember rightly, she was dying of lung cancer. And he says, you know, addiction's a disease. We need to be loving and compassionate. We've done that in New Jersey. What has Chris Christie done in New Jersey? What, what he holds up as an example is they took a prison and they renamed that prison as a rehab centre. And now all the same people who were put in prison are now in the rehab center that's in the prison. Right. And my fear is so these people know they can't hold the line for defending the war on drugs outright. Maybe some complete lunatic like like Jeff Sessions will try to do that. But but that that's that's a lost argument with the American people. Right. My fear is what they'll do is they'll say they'll effectively say, oh, we're ending the war on drugs. We're not going to fight the war on drugs anymore. And they will just rebrand the prisons as shame based rehab centers and they will rebrand they'll just make the most minor possible adjustments and and people on our side will back them by being oh yeah and crack down on the people pushing these evil drugs right so my 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 fear is we're going to get simultaneously a rebranding of the drug war and huge numbers of people being thrown off prescription opiates transferring to heroin and then being put into these shame-based rehabs in prisons or former prisons right that's the kind of um, so I'm most anxious about when it comes to drug. Po- well, it's one of the many things I'm anxious about when it comes to drug policy at the moment. And I think we really have to resist this by going back to the underlying causes. And just I don't think I've, I've said it in this interview and I, uh, I feel like I'm a bit of a broken record on this. But I think it's worth explaining the rat park experiment just to people who don't know. And some of your listeners won't, won't know because I think it really is a way for people to understand this so um, straightforwardly. That, And it's the thing that really changed my mind. So. If you had asked me when I started doing the, my, my book, at Chasing the Screen, I've learned it's like a mental tick to always say the name of the book to the publisher's time of day. Um, <laughs> when I first doing the research for Chasing the Screen, I, you know, if you'd asked me what causes addiction, I would have thought the answer was obvious. You know, heroin addiction is caused by heroin. Cocaine addiction is caused by cocaine. We're told that addiction is caused by the, the chemical hooks within a drug itself, right? So we're told 
you know, and effectively you took 20 people, you gave them all cocaine every day for a month, they'd all be cocaine addicts, you took 20 people and gave them all heroin, they, for a month they'd all be heroin addicts. And um, the first thing that made me realise that's not right is when it's explained to me, you know, in Britain, where I'm at the moment, obviously where I'm from, if you get hit by a car and you break your hip, you'll be taken to hospital and you'll be given a load of a drug called diamorphine. Mm, diamorphine is heroin. Yeah, it's just heroin. It's medically pure heroin, so it's much better than you're going to be buying on the streets of Vermont, right? And, you know, if any of your listeners have a British grandmother who's had a hip replacement operation, your grandmother's taken lots of heroin. If what we think about this is right, what should be happening in British hospitals? There should be loads of people becoming heroin addicts. There should be loads of people leaving hospital as heroin addicts, right? This is virtually unheard of, right? It just doesn't happen. And um, when I learned that, I just thought, oh, this is so weird. And I only really began to understand. So what you're saying is, Someone can lie in a hospital bed and be given loads of heroin. They don't become addicted. And yet a person out 